Uh, one of the fun things about being a parent, our kids are at the age now where they want to learn. They, they're fascinated by interesting trivia. And so as we look things up for the sake of our children, I'm learning a lot of things, or at least relearning things maybe that I used to know. And now, see, I get to pass on my knowledge to you. Did you know, for example, that the Great Wall of China is 13,000 miles long? Did you know further that the Great Wall of China took 1,900 years to build? This is good stuff you learn at Harvest Church. I, you know, I don't know what you came in here for, but uh, it's uh, part of the most fascinating thing about the Great Wall of China, since you asked, to me at least, in learning about it, uh, historians have estimated that, that up to 400,000 people died constructing that wall. Hundreds of thousands of people gave their lives, died in the process of building the Great Wall of China. And as many of them died in the process, they were actually buried inside the wall and the, the builders just kept on going. Isn't that interesting? Now, on one hand, we might look at something like that and say, hey, man, how terrible, what an awful way to go, that you're just dead and you're forgotten and thrown into the wall and they move on. But I have to imagine that at least for some people, that would have been a great honor, an honor for their family, that someone in our family died for the great cause of our country, of the safety of our borders, and now they are part of the wall forever. It's like a living memorial to them. Depends on how you look at it. Well, you know, the Bible uses a lot of uh, metaphors. When, when the Bible talks about the church, you may know this, that the church is described as a family, the family of God. We are described as a body, like a physical body. We are called the bride of Christ, a bride for her groom. The groom is Jesus. We're called branches that come off of a vine, and the vine is Jesus who gives us life. Well, right here in 1 Peter 2, you just saw it when I read it, there's an interesting metaphor given to the church. And I think about the Great Wall of China in a sense because Peter calls us living stones. We are like bricks. We're like stones that are built together into a new temple for God. That is the church. We are the temple that now lives to worship God, living stones. But when I think about this scripture and I think about the Great Wall of China, there's a, there's a contrast here that we need to be very careful to understand. For the men who died in building that great wall, and then they were buried inside, that wall became their tomb. And in their death, they served their purpose. But when Peter tells us about who we are as the church, we're built into the walls of a new building, in a sense, Peter says. But it's not a memorial to us. It's not a tomb. It's not the place where we lose our lives. Peter says, in becoming living stones, we actually discover life, true life and honor and purpose. We see as the church, we're going to see this today, that we have an identity and a purpose as the church that cannot die and that cannot be diminished because our identity and our purpose rest on the very person of Jesus Christ, the living stone, the precious cornerstone. Let's look at this, the, the scripture again. This is 1 Peter 2, beginning in verse 4. Peter says, And coming to him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. What does it mean for for Peter to call Jesus a living stone? In John chapter 2, a pretty famous story, Jesus 
enters into the temple in Jerusalem with a whip in his hands. Not characteristic, perhaps, of how we think about Jesus. He comes in with a whip, very angry, and he, he uh, drives out of the temple all of the people who were perverting the true worship of God through their greed and ambition. They were doing something terribly offensive to God's name, and Jesus drives them out of the temple in his anger. And he says, this house will be a house of prayer, not a, not a den of robbers. Now, the Jews were very angry with Jesus at this, and they said, show us a miraculous sign that will, that will prove that you have the authority to do this. What do you mean, your father's house? What are you gonna, how are you going to prove your authority? And Jesus makes an interesting statement in John 2. He says, destroy this temple, and I will raise it up again in three days. And they scoffed at him. They laughed. They said, this temple took 46 years to build, and you're going to raise it back in three days? But John tells us that Jesus was not talking about the physical temple. He was talking about his death and his resurrection. Jesus was saying to them, destroy this temple. Jesus is, is uh, claiming to be the temple of God. Destroy this temple, the temple of his body, and it will be raised up again in three days. And only after his resurrection did his disciples recognize what he meant. And so we come to Jesus as our temple, as, as our living stone. And Peter uses that phrase living to affirm the resurrection here. Jesus is not dead. He's, we, we don't gather as a memorial to what was. He is living. He is raised. And therefore, we gather to proclaim what is. He is our living stone. And therefore, he serves as our foundation. Right? That's what Peter says. He is the stone upon which the whole temple or the whole church is now built. And bigger than that, bigger than just the church, Jesus is the foundation for everything. Jesus is the name above all names, glory above all other glories, the king of all kings. That's who Jesus is. He is the precious stone. And so when we say Jesus is the foundation of our lives, part of that, that idea comes from 1 Peter chapter 2, that we are like stones built upon him. And look at, look at verse 5 again with me here. Verse 5 is really rich. Probably, I mean, we could spend a, a handful of sermons just on verse 5. He says, You also as living stones, that's us, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So we notice Jesus is our living stone, but then Peter says, You're, you're a living stone too. The church, we are living stones. And we are being built up into a temple, a spiritual house. Now, here's why this matters to us. This is not our context so much. But in the context of the Bible, it, under the Old Covenant, which is the Old Testament, before Jesus came to die and be raised again, there, were, there was a system of temple and priests and sacrifices, okay? You had the temple. This was the physical building in Jerusalem, which represented the central place that God's people would gather to worship him. Uh, it, it, was a, it was a structure. It was a place we went to, okay? Uh, then there were priests who operated both inside and outside of the temple, and the priests served as the mediators between the people and God. The people couldn't come to God simply on their own merits, and so the priests served that function to mediate that relationship, and they would perform sacrifices. Sacrifices of animals, of grain, of oil, uh, all sorts of physical, tangible things. The priests, that was their function. But now the Apostle Paul says, I'm sorry, the, the Apostle Peter says, uh, there is no more physical temple. 
That's not what Christianity is. There's not a central physical building where we all have to gather for the proper worship of God. That we, the church, we, the people, are the temple. And then further, he tells us that we don't have priests anymore who have to mediate the relationship between us and God. Some, some uh, strains of Christianity still have priests who mediate. That's not what we believe. We are Protestants. We protest the idea that I need someone else to go to God for me. Because in Jesus Christ, he is our great high priest, and therefore you get to go straight to God. You don't need a mediator. And this, this, may, not, this may be a surprise to you, you don't need to come to me to pray for you because my prayers count more as a pastor. I hope you know that's not true. You go straight to God. That's what the new covenant means. And we also, Peter says, we make sacrifices to God. We are the temple. We are, in a sense, priests because we come straight to God. And we make sacrifices, but Peter says they're not physical in the sense that they, they're not animals or grain or oil that, that our, our sacrifices are spiritual. You see that at the end of verse 5? We offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And the through Jesus Christ is significant there because that means that in essence, anything you do, anything that you give your life to can be a sacrifice pleasing to God because you trust and follow Jesus Christ because you are a living stone built on the stone that is Jesus we can live lives that honor God. We don't need anything in between. We don't need an offering in between that if I'll give this to God, then he'll accept me because in Jesus Christ, we're already accepted. Now your whole life is a sacrifice. Romans chapter 12, offer up your lives, offer up your bodies as living sacrifices. This is our act of worship. Isn't that awesome? That under the new covenant, we come straight to Jesus Christ because of what he has done for us. And so, because Jesus is the living stone, everything we are, everything that we have is built on him. It rests on him. And the outcome of, of, of a group of people acting as living stones who trust Jesus, the outcome is the church. The church, that's us. Um, and so Peter says, listen, we have life in Christ because we rest upon his life. He is the living stone, and therefore we are living stones as well. But it's not just eternal life that we receive. Peter tells us now that we also have honor. We have honor in Jesus Christ. Uh, to be a Christian is not just that I'll get to go to heaven one day. Of course, that's true. But here in this life and in the life to come, I am, you are honored because of Jesus Christ. That's what Peter says next, verse 6. He says, for this is contained in scripture, behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. That's, he's quoting from Isaiah 28 to say that Jesus is not just a living stone, but he says he's the precious cornerstone. Jesus is the chief cornerstone. A cornerstone was the the first stone laid down on a foundation for a building by which every other stone in the building found its measure and its fitting. Everything else fit around the cornerstone. The cornerstone was absolutely essential to the integrity of the building. And so when, when Peter talks about Jesus as the chief cornerstone, what he's saying is Jesus is God's absolute central foundation for all things. God is not holding out some special plan 
for us that has not already been instituted and ultimately fulfilled through Jesus. There's not more that God needs to do in order to bring about our redemption and salvation and life. He's already provided it in the cornerstone of Jesus Christ. And those who believe in him, Peter says, will not be disappointed. Now, that's a, that's, that's a pretty big understatement all by itself, that last little verse. Let me tell you what that means. Those who believe in Jesus as the cornerstone will not be disappointed or will not be put to shame, maybe is, is another way of translating that. Uh, think about this. Peter's audience, in 1 Peter, these were people who were being very harshly persecuted for their faith. They were absolutely pushed up against the wall because they had received Jesus and were walking with him in an antagonistic culture. They were really being squeezed, and there was no prospect or promise that things were going to get better for them. Things were bad, and Peter gives them no guarantee that that things are not going to get worse, at least here in time and space. But Peter reminds them here of who Jesus is. Who is Jesus and what has he done? He's the chief cornerstone. How did he become the chief cornerstone, the living stone? He suffered and he died. That Jesus Christ went through mocking and persecution and unjust, unfair treatment, and eventually he was crucified. But Peter reminds us that Jesus has been vindicated. He is not still in the grave. The grave is empty. The tomb is empty. And Jesus has been raised. Therefore, even though men have rejected him, he is choice and precious in the sight of God. He has been raised again to honor. And Peter says, so too will you. When you suffer, you will not end up disappointed because Jesus Christ has suffered for you and he suffered ahead of you. And I would just want to encourage us on this point. Um, when you suffer, and we all do, but when you suffer, especially when you suffer unjustly, and again, we all do, when we suffer for reasons that we cannot comprehend, or perhaps for what seems to be no good reason at all, Peter's reminding us and encouraging us on this point. Whatever reason God has for allowing that pain in your life, we may not know. But Peter says it's temporary. It's temporary and it's purposeful. It's meaningful because of Christ. Because he suffered for you, you will not be put to shame. Because he has been vindicated in his resurrection, so too will you. You will be vindicated. You will receive what the Bible calls glory and honor and immortality. Because Jesus Christ is your forerunner. He has gone ahead of you through his suffering and through his honor on the other side of it. That ought to bring us courage because we struggle through this life. But Jesus went ahead of you, and now he waits for us, his bride, with honor to bestow. That's what Peter's telling us. Now, that's wonderful news, um, but it's, it's only one side of a coin here. And, and if you think about it like this, Peter shows us the good news, but here in First Peter 2, he also gives us the bad, okay? Because Jesus as the cornerstone, that's only good news for those who trust him. That's verse 7. He says, this precious value, this honor, then, is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, And to this doom or to this end, they were also appointed. Uh, So Peter quotes from Psalm 118 right here. And he probably has the Jewish leaders in mind. When 
When the scripture says the stone which the builders rejected, most likely Peter's quoting that to talk about the Jewish leaders, of Je- the men who in Jesus' day, Jesus came to deliver to them the good news of the gospel to point them to himself for salvation, and they rejected him to the point that they killed him. And so Peter says Jesus is still the cornerstone. He's not the cornerstone only for those who believe. He's the cornerstone for everybody. But in the case of those who reject him, Peter says, rather than building their lives on top of the stone, they stumble and fall over the stone. They stumble and they fall into uh, uh, dishonor and shame. And when I see that word stumble, I'm prone to think of an accident because I stumble around the house, you know, over Legos and things like that. We stub our toes. That's not the, the idea here that this stumbling is an intentional action. It is a settled heart that rejects God's offer of grace through Jesus Christ. And what Peter is trying to say is that God deals decisively with every person over the issue of Jesus. To this end, he says, they were appointed. That means that if a person trusts Jesus and they build their lives on Jesus, the appointed end for them is glory and honor and life. But to the person who stumbles over the stumbling block, who views Jesus not as life but as a fence, they will fall over him into shame, and they are appointed to the end of their rejection, that they will die apart from Christ. That's bad news for them. And Peter is trying to, I think he's showing us this in part because he wants us to understand that there's no way to walk around the cornerstone. There's no alternate route whereby you can find life and honor apart from Jesus. The cornerstone means that God has appointed one man to be the decisive man for all eternity. That's why in Acts chapter 4 it says that there is no name under heaven by which men must be saved apart from the name of Jesus. He is the cornerstone. And so there is no alternate route there. We either build our lives on Jesus or we fall over him in our pursuit of self-righteousness. So the picture that, that Peter gives us now, he's not, he's not turning the focus entirely to the bad news. He just wants to make sure we understand it. The picture that Peter gives us of the church, he says, we are like living stones built together as God's temple as the church on the precious cornerstone of Jesus. And in that we have life and we have honor. Isn't that good? But he doesn't end there. And in fact, the the most profound part of this text has always been for me what comes next. Beginning in verse 9, Peter's got to tell us not just who we are, but what we're for. Not just who we are, but what we're for. To what end? Why are we the temple of God now? Simply for our own enjoyment and benefit? Or is there a greater purpose? And he tells us in verse 9 why we're here. But you are a chosen race, he says, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy but now you have received mercy. There in verse 9, Peter gives us four defining phrases. Here's who the church is. Um, He says that we are a chosen race. We are a holy nation. We are a people for God's own possession. I left one out because I'm going to come back to it. Those three, we're a chosen race, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. What that really means is that you and I, we are here right now as an act of mercy 
as a gift. I say this often because I, I, I need to hear it myself. None of us earned our way in here today. None of us deserves to be here because we achieved a certain level of goodness that has pleased God, and he's given us a ticket to the show, okay? We are here. We are a chosen race. That, mean God, that means God has set his affection on you. A holy nation. God has set us apart for himself. A people for God's own possession. That God has made you part of his family. That you now belong to him. You can't earn any of that. That's the whole basis of the Christian faith. If we receive those things as gifts, God set his affection on you and he made you part of his family as an act of his mercy. That's why we're here. But there's an, my favorite phrase out of those four in verse 9 is the second one. It says that we're a royal priesthood. It's really the most confusing phrase. And here's why it's confusing. In the Old Testament, you had royalty, you had kings, and you had priests. And they both came distinctly from specific lines, tribes. The priests came from the line of Levi, and the kings came from the line of Judah. Only if you were from Judah could you be a king. Only Levites could be priests. And there was no crossover. You couldn't be both. Nobody could be both a king and a priest in the Old Covenant. But in the New Covenant, in the New Testament, someone holds the office of both king and priest. Do you know who it is? It's Jesus. Jesus divinely fulfills both offices. He is king and he is priest. Something unthinkable, something unheard of yet, but in, in the divine Son of God, he is both. And Peter says, not, not that Jesus is the king and priest. We know that's true. Hebrews tells us a lot about that. He says, you are a royal priesthood. Because we have been united with Christ, he says, you are royal and you are priestly. An absolutely mind-boggling thing. To us, it may not mean much, but to these people in this culture, oh my goodness, I'm royal. You are royal because we have been adopted into the family of God. The very king himself has made us his children. And we are priests, remember, because we have a unique privilege of coming directly to God on the basis of his grace. We don't need any go-between for us. We are priests who come straight to the Father. And beyond that even, we're priests in the sense that we serve on this earth the wonderful function of the harvest. We are harvesters. We talk about that a lot here. We're priests in the sense that we do mediate a relationship. We actually get to bring the gospel to others. That because of our influence and our words, we can actually help others to see the gospel of Jesus that we have received. And in that way, we're priests. We are a royal priesthood. Isn't that amazing? And see, that's where Peter is starting to show us his hand here in terms of what our purpose is. Verse 9, those four principles that we just looked at all by themselves are wonderful, but there's a so that in the middle of verse 9. Did you catch it? And the so that is absolutely essential. He says we are who we are in Christ so that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So, God, by his grace, has given us a position that we could not deserve. We're his children. Um, and, and as his beloved children, we have a position that we can never lose. We couldn't earn it. We can't lose it. But now, Peter says, with all of those riches in our account, we are sent out into the world to disperse them, to share the riches of Christ with others. That's our primary mission for life. That's what the church is called to do. That's why always, always, when God brings a person in by his grace, 
He delights to send that person back out with his purpose. When God brings a person in by his grace, it is in part that he might send you back out for his purpose. And that's what Peter's going to tell us our purpose is, to proclaim the excellencies of him who has saved us. Uh, One of the interesting stories that comes out of ancient Greece we're all over the map today, by the way. We're the Great Wall of China. We're in ancient Greece. Uh, you may have heard this story. If you haven't, it's, it's wonderful. You'll never forget it. It's of a man named Phidippides, or Phidippides. I'm not sure how you pronounce it. We're, we're gonna, Phidippides sounds more fun. But uh, a man named Phidippides, who was uh, a Greek man stationed with the army, the Greek army, in the city of Marathon. He was not a, a soldier. He was what's called a runner. Okay? And here's what happened in Marathon. The Greeks were uh, seriously outnumbered by the invading Persians, but to everyone's shock, the Greeks prevailed. They won the Battle of Marathon, at which point Phidippides left the city and ran as fast as he could from Marathon to the city of Athens, about a 25-mile journey. And that is, if you're wondering, that's where we get the term Marathon from this story. He runs from Marathon to Athens, And upon reaching the city of Athens, everybody in the city is gripped with fear, assuming the worst, assuming defeat. And yet Phidippides looks out at the city, everyone gathered and paying attention only to him, and he yells out two words, Rejoice! Victory! And with those words, Phidippides fell over dead from exhaustion. Now, he is an example of what the ancient Greeks called an evangelist. That's their word, not ours. Did you know that? He was an evangelist. He was someone who comes to proclaim good news of great joy. Someone who comes to proclaim victory. He's the runner responsible for spreading the good news. And see, this is what Peter calls us to be as the church. As of first importance, he says, this is your purpose, to proclaim the excellencies of God like the very first marathon runner who expended all of his energy even to his dying breath, in order to shout to his people, rejoice, victory. Peter says, now see, that is our divine privilege, and that's our responsibility. That's who we are. More precious than anything else that we can give our lives to, Peter says, we are now the evangelists who proclaim the good news. And you know, here's an interesting thing about that story. Uh, Phidippides was not a soldier meaning he had no hand in the battle. He had no enemy blood on his hands when he ran to Athens. He was simply the messenger. He didn't fight. He just proclaimed. And the people to whom he proclaimed the message, they had no hand in the battle, of course. They were completely helpless. Their entire lives and their future were dependent on the outcome of that battle. And all they could do was wait for the news of either victory or defeat. You notice that, that, that's, that's what we are as Christians. That on one hand, we're like Phidippides. We had no hand in the decisive battle. The battle for sin, the battle for death has been won. It's been, the, the victory has been claimed not by us, not by our own moral goodness, but by Jesus Christ and what he did on our behalf. The battle's been won. And now as we proclaim that victory, we don't proclaim it to people who don't need it. Everybody needs to be brought out of darkness and into light. That's the central human problem and the central antidote that God has fought the battle for us so that everyone's lives, everyone's future depends on the outcome of that victory. 
So when we share the good news of Jesus, we're not sharing good advice. We're not telling people, get your act together, get with it, get right with God. That's not our message. Our message is rejoice, victory. The decisive battle has been fought and won on our behalf. Jesus Christ loved us enough to give his life for us. That's why we call it the gospel, because gospel means good news. It's not good advice. It's not self-improvement. It's good news. And y'all, as, listen, as we close on this, I, I, I know most of you are like me. Uh, most of us struggle to do what Peter's telling us to do right here, to go out, outside of our comfort zone, outside of the confines of the church, to go out and proclaim Jesus and his excellencies, him who called us out of, out of darkness and into his marvelous light, to basically go and share the gospel with people. Um, most Christians, at least most Christians in our context, struggle with that, and we don't really do it, especially if it makes us uncomfortable or if there's the potential for rejection. And y'all, I just want, I want to acknowledge that this is for me, this is, this is an area of struggle for me. That may seem strange to you that the pastor would struggle. I mean, I, and here, here's the interesting thing. I do it every Sunday in this room. But if you get me, you know, alone with somebody at a coffee shop or somebody who might be antagonistic or who might think I'm loony, I, I clam up just like anybody else. I, I'm not as bold in those confines as I am here. And I want you to understand that this is something I need. I need to grow in this. I need this command to infiltrate my heart and my life, just like perhaps you do. But I want to encourage you also in this. It's never been easy. Our, our, our social cultural moment is not unique to us. It's never been easy to share the gospel. Again, think about who is reading this letter in the first place. The people reading 1 Peter, they were being persecuted. They were being maligned for their faith. Because they were Christians, they were being pushed up against the wall. And Peter says, go proclaim Jesus to these people all the more. The people who you know hate you for what you believe. It wasn't easy for them. And yet, if, we're, if, we're, if we understand what Jesus Christ has done for us, and we grasp now what he's called us to do, then it only makes good sense. It's like having the cure for cancer. You would never bottle that up and keep that to yourself, only for me and my family, just in case. No, you would shout it from the rooftops. You would make it known as, as far and wide as you possibly could for the good of others. And here's something we have that's even greater than that, something more ultimate than that. And that is the antidote for sin and death. That is the grace of Jesus Christ, the light that overpowers the darkness. And so if God has so lavished his grace on us as the church, we don't view this text as marching orders that we just have to obey because God's going to be mad at me if I don't share my faith. This is our joy. This is our privilege. It is our responsibility, yes, but like Phytopetus, who witnessed the victory and expended all of his energies, he ran with all of his might so that he might proclaim that message. That's us. And that's what God has given us the privilege to do. Not something we get to do in heaven. There's no need for it there. But between now and then, it's ours. The harvest is plentiful, Jesus said, but the workers are few. And we ought to pray that God would send out more and more into the harvest. That's us. That's us. That's not just pastors and missionaries. That's you and me. That's us. And so here's, here's what I want to encourage us in as we close. Um, if you're like me, you struggle with this, you clam up, you freeze up, you get nervous, you fear rejection, whatever, whatever the issue may be. 
Um, let it start for us, not with a plan, but with a heart. That just, that we, you and I, that we would ask God for a heart like this. I really believe that's where it starts. I believe that this is a prayer that God will absolutely answer yes to. He will not say no to you if you ask him, God, give me a heart that wants nothing more than to proclaim your excellencies, than to, than to let others know with great joy what you have done for me and what you have done for them. Give me that heart. And if you will give me that heart, Father, then open up doors of opportunity. Put me in front of people that I can meet and get to know. Put me in front of people that perhaps I've known for a long time, but I've stopped short of sharing the hope that is within me. Father, if you would give me that kind of heart and open those kind of doors, I promise you he will. Then, Lord, I'll be courageous enough to step through them. And I may stutter through it. I may be awkward as anything, but I'm going to do simply the natural outcome of what God has done for me. If he has made me alive in Christ, then it only makes sense that he would send me out to proclaim that message of life to others. That is ours. That is a unique privilege that we have as the church. And as we pray, I want to encourage you in this. There's a unique uh, personal commitment required here, yes. But he, Peter tells us to do this in the plural. As the church, as living stones, plural, built up into a spiritual house, the church, we get to do this together. We encourage each other. We spur each other on together. If you struggle to do this personally, so do I. But we're not called to do it alone. And so let's pray that God would equip us together for this wonderful privilege. Lord, we, I, I ask this morning that you would not allow us to simply enjoy your blessings without being shot out of a cannon <laughs> into our community, into our families, into our workplaces, our schools, wherever it may be. I, I pray, Lord, that we would not sit back and enjoy what we've been given, but that we would be propelled outward. If we really believe that Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone, there's no alternate route whereby a person can find life, then, Father, I pray that we would have a sense, a deep sense of of, uh, of a burden, of an obligation. We've got to make Jesus known. He is, he is the only light in this great darkness of our world. He is the only hope we have uh, for a life that, that transcends sin and death and darkness. And so, Father, I pray that, that you would, would delight to impress this on our hearts. This is not just something we ought to do, and, and we'll feel guilty if we don't. This is something, Lord, that you've given to the church as a first importance to proclaim, to tell, to run and tell, Lord, even if it, was, even if it meant our dying breath for us to shout rejoice, victory, that, Father, we would, we would give our lives to this. And so, Father, as you call us into this, make it clear that, Father, this is not ours to do alone but together. And I pray encourage us, even as we consider who sits on our right and our left this morning, that, Lord, this is our gift. We are living stones, plural, and this is our responsibility that we together proclaim you. And, Lord, I pray that that takes maybe some of the pressure off of us, that, Lord, you're, you're the one who brings salvation, not us, and you call us to do it together, Father. And so teach us as Harvest Church what that looks like. That may not be our experience in the past, that the church does it together. But Lord, I pray that, that this would be who we are. 
And that, Lord, where we are fearful, where we, where we are anxious, where we are introverted, where we, are, uh, where we feel ignorant, we don't know enough about the Bible, whatever it is that is for us a hurdle in the way, Father, let's cross those hurdles together. And let's encourage each other to be about this. Um, our community needs this message and needs a Savior. Um, and I pray, Lord, that you would make, it, make that, that truth to weigh on our hearts. Don't let us be content, Father, until we have, we have proclaimed you this week. Um, even if we do a really bad job of it, Father, push us out there together and, and let us learn what it is to, um, to, to make you known, to shout rejoice so that others might receive the victory that we have come to know in Christ. And we ask it in his name.